Gee, India's pretty busy on the space front, eh? <laughs> I thought when, when India beat Russia uh, to get to the moon, we wouldn't really talk about India's space exploits for, I don't know, a while. Yeah, let's let's shut the book on this for a bit. Mm. But uh, no, no. Open your laptop and then bam! <laughs> India's going to the sun. <laughs> the sun! <laughs> and we've got four months now. Yes, it's going to take four to months. To find out what they'll do on the sun. They're sending a satellite up to observe the sun's outermost layers. And uh, this will be the first vessel by any Asian nation to be placed in orbit around the sun. But we'll look forward to speaking about this in four months' time. We will. When they get there. Indeed. Anyway. Let's get to it. Kia ora, this is Newsball. I'm Emil. And I'm Imogen. And this is what's worth talking about. Both Labour and National launched their election campaigns over the weekend. So, were they a hit or a miss? Tovar O'Brien's in to unpack it all. We're chatting as well to an immigration lawyer following reports of Immigration NZ staff saying they've been directed to ignore parts of visa applications, including some criminal convictions, in a bid to get visas granted faster. We've got the tale of a woman with the most bizarrely perfect name for this moment in time. And plus, we found the unofficial best time to send an email. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz slash support. It's only days since Parliament ended, but this weekend it was all on. Saturday and the Labour Party launched its campaign. A day later and it was National's turn to take the stage. Labour leader Chris Hipkins took the opportunity to announce another big election policy. By the end of our next term in government, 40% of all Kiwis will have access to this free dental care. Labour's ultimate goal is to provide free universal dental care for all New Zealanders. There were no new big promises from National, though, but an eight-point pledge card and family endorsement from Christopher Luxon's children. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Olivia Luxon. And I'm William Luxon. Our dad is an amazing father, and we know that he will make a great prime minister. We hope that he and National get the opportunity to lead, and so we say to you all, good, good luck, luck with, with the, the campaign. campaign. Stuff's chief political correspondent joins us, Tova O'Brien. Kia ora. Kia ora, guys. What was the feeling at these two launches? Was there much of a difference in terms of vibe or was one camp more confident or bullish than the other? Well, I was terribly excited because it's so good to have the campaign finally underway and both major parties launching in the same weekend was just awesome. Neither of them disappointed in terms of kind of paint-by-numbers major party campaign launches. They had all the elements and suitably stirred up their respective cult-like crowds and each of them were, were quintessentially party appropriate. So National kind of went all in with hype, big performances from cultural groups around the world, hype girl extraordinaire Nicola Willis, uh, a personal touch when Chris for Luxon's kids introduced him mm. and then they also had the same guy who works for the Nats but he's the same guy who announces the All Blacks into the stadiums he was announcing all the candidates into the venue and they formed this this kind of guard of honour for Luxon to walk through and his arrival was very US presidential waving and smiling and kissing and handshaking his way towards the stage Labour on the other hand they had hype 
two Pacifica dramas. They had Reb Fountain performing. She's brilliant. She was in for Don McGlashan, who unfortunately uh, was struck down with COVID. Oscar Kitely, who's kind of Labour's go-to comedian MC. And then they had, of course, Helen Clark doing a scene-setting speech ahead of Chris Hipkins. But a lot of the energy perversely came from the way the crowd responded to the undercover-planted protesters who heckled the speakers, and that was actually quite cool. So Labour, all their members and supporters would get up and start cheering and chanting the um, the hecklers, the, the undercover protesters, out of the auditorium. Mm. Tobra, if we look at the sort of substance, I guess, of, of what was actually announced at these launches, you know, we had National's pledge card versus a new dental policy from Labour. How do you sort of compare and contrast how those landed? There's the rub, because that's where National really fell flat, I think. Labour mm. came out the gate with this whopper-chopper populist policy and then National follows up with, drumroll, a pledge card. <laughs> and like, you know, he said he wanted to kind of consolidate their policies and consolidate their vision to hammer their quote-unquote bedrock commitments and he pointed to National's 37 or 38 policies that they'd already announced, but they should have had a policy because it really sets the tone for the campaign as we saw with Labour yesterday and the other thing had National had a big um, a blockbuster policy to announce today the other thing it might have helped prevent was Luxon's media stand-up being totally overshadowed by these not insignificant questions over whether National's foreign buyer tax will breach international tax treaties and whether they can actually pay for their tax cuts which is what ended up happening. So you know hovering in the background of, of all of this was um you know, the, the spectre of disruption and protest. And that did, as you alluded to before, really break into the, particularly the Labour Party launch. We've got some audio of it here. Yes. Get the f*** out of my face. Get the f*** out of my way. Keep walking, dude. Keep walking. Okay. Okay. You guys start pushing my f***ing son. What's your language, man? Hey, what's your language? Get uh, that was one of the protesters that tried to derail the Labour leader all weekend. Uh, they were there at the launch and then again yesterday at a walkabout in Ōtara Markets. The protesters were also meant to be at Nationals launch, Tova, but the disruption wasn't to quite the same level, it's fair to say? Yeah, it was It was different. So I think police at National took some lessons from, from Labour and those hecklers that had gone undercover and planted themselves into the conference floor and were heckling during the speeches and derailing and being really, frankly, disruptive. The first one was kind of exciting and funny and then um, come the, the third and fourth, it was just felt really anti-democratic and annoying and pain in the ass protesters protesting for the sake of being a pain in the ass. Whereas the, the protesters that were in National, Freedom NZ, you know, Brian Tumakey's crowd, the group outside the National party launch was much, much bigger and the man himself, Brian Tamaki, was there up on his soapbox going on about toilets and trans issues and things and they were very loud uh, outside but with a fair distance to the actual entrance of the National Party Conference and they, they they kind of ran out of steam pretty quick, disbanded well before the conference properly began so it was a bit of an unwelcome committee. And Tova, just while we've got you, you've got a bit of an announcement of your own to make, haven't you? Something, uh, you're launching something yourself I this week? I am, I am in keeping with the theme of the week uh, with campaign launches we are launching a brand new political podcast and I'd say probably at just the right time it's going to have interviews, analysis commentary from two of the biggest brains in politics, Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass, it's going to have all the weird and wonderful things that politics and the campaign can provide and it is going to be all about you and I don't mean just you two, but it's going to be oh, you, know, you, everyone out there. Everyone in the country, we're going to dive into the things that you care about, that you're concerned about, and I cannot wait. I'm so excited. The first episode is going to drop this Thursday. To Ryan, 
A pleasure as always, and that will be a great listen. Of course, you can find that on uh, all of the places where you find useful as well. Thanks, guys. We're going to be chatting email psychology a little later and how to maximise your chances of getting an email read by its recipient. So tell us, as a rule, do you respond to work-related emails outside your work hours? Let us know. We'll chuck a poll up on the old Instagram. Just search Newsable NZ or flick us an email <laughs> at newsableatstuff.co.nz. The startling revelations about Immigration New Zealand and visa processing just continue to unfold. An independent review into the accredited employer work visa has already been announced by the Minister after a whistleblower revealed how migrants were being exploited. In the latest twist, immigration staff have told staff that they were instructed to operate on a light touch to ignore some criminal convictions or investigations when processing and not to check work visa visas at the border in a bid to grant visas faster. Immigration staff have described the visa system as completely dysfunctional and one that has allowed rampant fraud. To unravel what's going on, we're joined now by immigration lawyer Nicola Tiffin, who has just stepped down from being the chair of the Association of Migration and Investment. What do you make of all of these stories coming out? Are you surprised by them? I am and I'm I'm not. There's been some concerns in amongst the immigration law and advisor industry for some time about some applications potentially being approved that we thought may not have been eligible for approval. But also, there has been an enormous amount of pressure on Immigration New Zealand to put through a considerable amount of applications in a very short period of time following the border closure. So it's understandable that there may have been a few errors along the way. Should we be worried about who's been allowed into the country under this so-called light-touch approach? What it does mean is that there has been potentially more risk being brought onshore, which may have been stopped offshore in the past. What sort of risks were you talking about? Well, there's a variety of risk in terms of the enforcement of immigration laws in the country. So, for example, people could overstay their visas or work in a role for which they haven't been given a visa. But there's also risk in terms of if some of these allegations are correct of people who do have criminal histories coming into New Zealand and potentially repeating their transgressions in our country. Do you think a situation like this would potentially have been foreseeable in the sense that, you know, the immigration kind of shut down to all intents and purposes for a, a very long time and then, you know, it's come back rather suddenly. Well, Immigration New Zealand themselves would acknowledge that there's always been a certain contingent of people who will try and get around the immigration rules and make money. There's always been criminal gangs who will try and move people into a country for profit. So yes, it was absolutely foreseeable. And I believe Immigration New Zealand may argue that they've developed a system that enables them to move and adapt to these risks as they arise. I think a lot of concern may be from lawyers and immigration advisors that the system in the first place at the highest level, some of the policy decisions perhaps relied too much on a high trust model and perhaps in the future that may need to be tweaked. Are are there relatively simple things that we could do, do you think, to to minimise migrants being exploited? If what is reported is correct in that 
documents which are attached as evidence to visa applications have not been checked or verified, then that is very serious. If it has been happening, I'm sure it will be rectified going forward because that absolutely needs to happen. These documents proving people's work experience or their police certificates or their medical information needs to be double-checked. Nicola Tiffin, thank you so much for your time. Hey, we're still going to talk about the unfortunate realities of sharing a name with a very famous person or film extravaganza, as it happens. But while you're here, if you are enjoying what you're hearing, chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. It is scientifically proven to make you rich, charming and incredibly attractive. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead... The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, Subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. Tell you what we've not talked about lately, which I swear was almost a daily occurrence for us at one point. Tell me. Barbie and Oppenheimer. You know, I still haven't actually seen Oppenheimer. Have you not? Nah. I've still not seen Barbie. (laughs) (laughs) How have we ended up in this situation? Yes, here we are, early September, and we are still finding ways to wedge this uh, cinematic maelstrom into the show. Uh, and that is because there is a woman <laughs> whose name is Barbie Oppenheimer. <laughs> and, and she is having a tough few months. So her name's Barbara, but she goes by the nickname Barbie. Mm-hmm. She's recently done a series of interviews with US media. She's from the States. She's actually a retired scientist herself, and her husband is a distant relative to the Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. But yeah, her name is Barbie Oppenheimer, and everyone's having a whale of a time for the fact that that's her name. And she says recently she had trouble checking into a hotel because the concierge just didn't believe her. <laughs> it's so it's so beautiful, and like because you know the the chances of a person having you know, these two names as remote Very. at best in the first place. But there are, of course, lots of examples of, like, the mistaken identity things where, mm. like, you know, um, someone has gone through the first 40 years of their life with the name Mike Pence um, <laughs> and, and they're just a normal person. And then all of a sudden, Donald Bam. Trump gets elected president and Mike Pence is a vice president. And, and then, boom, their, their, their world is just upended. Um, vice did a great article about this uh, where they interviewed a bunch of people. Um, they interviewed a Mike Pence. Uh, they interviewed a Taylor Swift, oh. uh, a Jamie Oliver, and a Kate Middleton about sort of you know their, their lives. And a Kate Middleton as well. That's impressive to get more than one of those. So the Kate Middleton person said uh, when the royal Kate Middleton's engagement to Prince William was announced, she got over three thousand friend requests on Facebook <laughs> overnight. Um, she also said once she checked into a hotel in Romania, and as the receptionist flicked through the paperwork, she landed on a page with my name at the top and handwritten in bold red capital <laughs> letters were the words not. Not the princess, <laughs> repeatedly <laughs> underlined. My favourite example of this, um, one, is that there is an Italian porn artist that has the Twitter handle at Albo. Oh, is in... Is in, that's what, you know, the nickname that Anthony <laughs> Albanese has. So not a porn star or a porn oh. entertainer. This man draws porn. And so people are frequently tagging this at Albo, including Aussie politicians in some cases. Oh my God, and then there's another example 
A woman called Liz Trussell has the handle Liz Truss, whereas the Liz Truss has Truss Liz. Very confusing. <laughs> so when actual politician Liz Truss became Prime Minister, normal woman Liz Truss gets a tag from the Swedish Prime Minister saying congrats. <laughs> but this woman played along and replied, looking forward to a visit soon. Get the meatballs ready. <laughs> I think my favourite part of that is that that actually does sound like something the real Liz Truss of the former British Prime Minister would in fact say. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. That, that, I think that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. Emil, how are you when it comes to replying to emails? Uh, inconsistent, I would say. Uh, <laughs> um, I would say the first moments after I read the email are crucial. It's like a like 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 the police following up a kidnapping, you it's know. Like now or never. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If it's not, if I don't respond in a very narrow window after I receive the email, that's it. It's it's gone. Don't know why I bothered even asking because I know that that's what you do because you have ghosted me on numerous occasions. <laughs> to anyone who wants to get a, a response from Emil Donovan, aka me, I have some excellent advice. Email Emil Donovan <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon. No. Yep. Don't email. Do. Don't. Yes. No. Yep. Don't email me. Do on email a Sunday him. Afternoon. Yep. A study done by Axios HQ, the software branch of the media company Axios, has found that emails sent on Sunday afternoons have a drastically higher chance of being opened than an email sent at any other time. Hmm. They looked at 8.7 million emails. (laughs) This is not one of those random studies that I like to bring to the table. And you roll your eyes. This is legit. Normally between 50 and 76% of emails are opened at any given time. But on a Sunday afternoon, that number leaps, nay, pole vaults, (laughs) all the way up to 94%. 94%? Yeah. Okay. Several things Mm -hmm. in that excellent paragraph of text that that, that you just came up with. Kia ora. the poor bugger who had to sift through 8.7 million emails. I mean, once you're at 8.7, you call it nine. <laughs> We're rounding up. And be 94%. That is a really, that's a genuinely big disparity. Is there any explanation on this? Well, apparently it's partly because of the lack of competition. Very few people are sending emails on Sunday afternoons. So when you check your emails on a Monday morning, ah. those are the first ones you see. So there's less chance of you simply covering your eyes and adopting the, if I don't acknowledge this, maybe it'll vanish forever. So it's like early bird gets the worm email edition. Yep. Nailed it on the head. Do you think this would work for you? This is like my <laughs> annual performance <laughs> review happening yep. live on Newsable. Mm. Uh, would it work for me? Probably not. But it's, hey, it's worth a try if you want to start emailing me on a Sunday afternoon. We, we, we can do a live experiment. <laughs> I think it's time to end. Uh, that is Newsball for today. I'm Imogen Wells. And I'm Emil Donovan. Remember to send us an email, newsboyandstuff.co.nz, on a Sunday. And we'll be back tomorrow from 6. Have a good day. Till then. Newsable. News that's worth talking about. If you liked it and reckon it's also worth supporting, 
please make a contribution at stuff.co.nz support.